Hey everybody, I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering, so please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. Um, today, I we have a lot of questions, and it's funny. They're always themes, and the theme, you'll notice it right from the get, has a lot to do with like going to therapy and actually talking about what you're upset about instead of just saying that everything's okay, which I know we all struggle with. Um, but how are you doing? I just want to check in. I had to do the Patreon live stream yesterday. If you guys don't know, I have a Patreon account, and that's how I support what I do um, because I already know that this podcast isn't going to be monetizable on YouTube because of the topic uh there's just topics, anything I talk about, self-harm, abuse, suicide, even if I just mentioned those now that I've said them, not monetized. It's so awesome. Not at all. Um, so frustrating. Anyways, um, so I have a Patreon account and we did a live stream yesterday and it was really great. It, even though it's exhausting because they're really long, I'll be honest, it's like anywhere from three to four hours. Yesterday's was around four hours um, answering just questions and talking to everybody. Uh, it always, not only does it challenge me to think differently, and to learn more about certain things, but it's just a great conversation. It's a way to like share in things that we've learned, uh, things that I know mixed with things that you know. And uh, you know, I've, I said this back in the day. I used to say, with your expert, uh, with your experience and my expertise, we work together towards a healthy mind and a healthy body. And it still rings true. Um, we had a little bit of uh, disagreement around a topic about marriage and intimacy and having a best friend that's of the same sex as the people that, you know, the type of people we're attracted to or the person that we're married to. Um, and I enjoy that. I enjoy the discussion. I enjoy the disagreement. I'm not the end all be all. My opinion, you know, is, is just that. And there are obviously there's, there's going to be not in this instance, but in a lot of things, there's, there's research to support what I say. But when it comes to, you know, relationships and whether or not a certain, way of being is healthy or not healthy. A lot of that just depends on you and your partner and the conversation that you have and the agreements that you've come to together. Um, but anyway, I just really had a good time. And so normally I film this on a Tuesday, but today I'm filming on a Wednesday morning. So good morning. I've got my coffee and let's get into those questions. Question number one is how come I feel really bad during the week, but then I go to therapy and seem like the happiest person ever. I don't know how to just say, help me. I love this question. It got a ton of thumbs ups, a ton of comments, and a ton of just people saying, me too, hope that Katie answers this. So I am. Yay. Um, the best, honestly, a lot of us do this. A lot of times, and somebody even left a comment below this saying how they just look forward to seeing their therapist. Like sometimes I get so personally, I get so excited that I get to go see someone and just dump all the shit I've been thinking and worrying about. And that excitement makes the bad stuff go away or the day after therapy or even just the, you know, that the half a day left after a therapy appointment, I'll have like a really shit time. But by the time it comes like the next week, I've like forgotten about that. And so that's why I talk all the time about the importance of journaling. 
And I know a lot of you hate it and some of you love it, but it's really beneficial, even if it's just a couple of things like what went well today, one thing, what went badly today, one thing, you know, um, I know I talked a lot about like two things I'm grateful for, two things I'm working on and two things I'm looking forward to, because that can just be an easy way to kind of shape, uh, not shape, but just like shift our thinking from negative to a little bit more positive. And so there are a lot of ways that we can journal and I would encourage all of you to at least keep track of what's going on. What symptoms are you feeling? You said you feel really bad during the week. What is that like? Does that mean you cry easily? Does that mean that you lack motivation? It's hard to get out of bed. Like, what is it? I want you to write those things down because we really need to be able to express that in therapy. If we don't tell our therapist about anything that's going on, they're not really going to know how to help us. I've talked about this in the past about how a therapist is only as good as the information that we give them, right? Like if we don't give them the nitty gritty uh, stuff about what's really happening to us and what we're really going through, how will they know that we're even going through it? They won't. And that's the great thing about a therapist is they don't have any preconceived notions or any information other than what we give them, which means as much as possible, they're uninvolved in our life regularly and unbiased. And so it really helps. However, that means that we're the only one that they can get information from. And so we're going to have to figure out how to say, I need help. Things are shitty. I feel terrible. Um, And that's where the journaling comes in. Even if it's just bullet points of symptoms, things that have happened, ways that you felt, just write the date, write a couple sentences or a couple bullet points about it. And then just read that off in therapy. Or if your therapist will allow it, because some therapists do, and I allow this depending on the patient, but I'll allow this sometimes where you could just email knowing that I'm not going to respond, but get it out there. You can email it out to me knowing that then I'll bring it up in session. So then usually I'll print out those emails and talk about them with my patients in session. So that could be another way to get that out so that you don't forget or don't just completely become silenced in session. Like, uh, I forgot what I was going to say. I think I'm okay. You know, a lot of us also try to downplay uh, what's happening and how we're feeling. So yeah, that those are my thoughts about that is try one of those ways to get into it. Try to, uh, you know, journal, try to see if you can email, ask your therapist. If you're able, tell your therapist, hey, I really feel bad in between sessions, but I can't, I don't know, I can never talk to you about it in session or I have a tough time. Maybe if you can't say that, I have a tough time speaking up in session would you be open to me emailing you what's going on? You don't, I don't expect a reply, but then that's what we can talk about in the next session. You know, you can ask about those things. Also, if you, if they don't allow that, because a lot of therapists do not allow emails because, you know, HIPAA compliance and expectation of them replying and all those things, we can instead say, hey, can I just bring in uh, my journal and just hand it to you. And then we just got to get in that habit. We got to just hand over the papers so that we maybe if we can't read it out loud in session, maybe they'll, you know, we can just wait for them to read it and then they'll bring it up. Um, and I've done that as well with patients. So finding a way to meet you where you're at and making it as easy for you as possible while still challenging yourself to learn to speak to your issues. Cause we're going to have to start to put language to what's going on. And that's where the journaling comes in, right? We have to learn about it. We have to be curious about ourselves, be a detective. Okay. Got it. Try those things out. Let me know. I think a lot of people struggle to be honest and we don't want to, you know, burden anybody. But a therapist is there to be burdened. We're there to hear all your problems. We don't only expect to hear the happy things. In fact, we usually expect to only hear the bad things. So no stress about that. Okay. Question number two. Hey, Katie, I've been in therapy for a while now, and I just have this thing where I'm always looking forward to the next session, but then the day actually comes and I dread going. 
In between sessions, I think about what I want to bring up next, but I always end up feeling like I'm overreacting right before the next session. I usually warm up after a while, but I was just wondering where this comes from. Even after several months in therapy, there was a comment below this too, said I'm exactly the same way, only several hours before the appointment. I completely blank on everything I wanted to talk about is lost. Even when I write down bullet topics to address, I convince myself that they're trivial things and I won't say anything during my session. You can see the theme, it's developing, right? So when it comes to this, the reason that this can happen where we look forward to it all week and then right before our session, we're like, "Mm, I don't really want to go anymore is because we all know how, how exciting therapy sounds, right? We all know how, how hopeful it can feel or how hopeful we can imagine it to be, right? Like a lot of people assume that therapy means that the things will just be fixed, like the therapist will fix us, presto fixo. Uh, unfortunately, that's not true. But a lot of us can have that that feeling like, oh my God, it's gonna be great. I'm gonna get to talk about everything. I'm gonna get some insight, you know, and we're able to look forward to it. But when it comes time, we're reminded of the fact that we have to talk about our shit. We have to uh, be challenged and answer questions and we have to do our homework. And there's a lot more that goes into it. And that vulnerability that's going to come along with a real therapy session is fucking uncomfortable, right? That's not something that we want to do. Vulnerability, ooh, people don't like it, right? And, and so that would be my guess as to why this is happening is thinking about the help that we're going to receive and the support that we're going to get from therapy, exciting, wonderful, the realization that we're going to have to be vulnerable and share things that we maybe aren't aren't comfortable with and do things that are difficult, uncomfortable, and then we can dread it. Ugh. And so as it gets closer, that realization, I believe it would, that would be my hypothesis. But you let us, let me know, let us know in those comments, like if that's not true. The way to overcome this is honestly to bring it up with your therapist. I know that that might be hard, but sometimes it's easier to not talk about ourselves, but instead to talk about our therapeutic process. So I would encourage you to then, you know, in your next session with your therapist, bring it up with them and say, you know, I've been having a tough time uh, getting into therapy. Like say all week I look forward to it and I think about all the things that I want to talk about. But when it gets close, I dread coming in. And I hate that I do because I know that it's going to be helpful. I don't know where that's coming from. And, you know, and you could even say like, and then I feel like I'm overreacting. And so even the things that I thought my, I might want to talk about, I end up thinking that I'm, they're not actually, they're really trivial. And so I don't want to bring them up. I don't know why this is happening. If you're able to get that out, that is super beneficial. If you're able to write that out again, going back to that first question, if you're able to write it out and get it over to them, that that gives us a lot of information. Oftentimes I tell my patients, like if they're, let's say they're just not, we're not making any progress and it's been a couple of weeks. I always just bring up that fact. I don't want to talk about, uh, let's say the issue is I struggle to talk about my trauma and I end up dissociating and shutting down and we're really getting, we're having a tough time getting through that. Okay. Instead of bringing up that, because obviously it's triggering, obviously talking about trauma is fucking hard and nobody wants to do it. And we know that. I know that. I'm not going to bring that up. Instead, I'm going to say, you know, it seems to me it's been hard for you to stay present in therapy. Why don't we just try some different grounding techniques and you let me know what you want me to do when you dissociate when you're here. And so we kind of go in a side door. Again, it's like we might get around to that trauma. We might get into talking about it and what is triggering. Maybe. That's not always the goal, but the goal is to continue the conversation and continue helping you move forward and helping you make progress, even if it's just 
us gathering more information because a lot of times in therapy, we think, you know, it's direct, right? Okay, so we have depression. We want to attack the depression, want to recognize the symptoms, get them maybe to see a psychiatrist, see if that is helpful. Then we want, you know, we're going to do these things. But there's all these roadblocks. It's like a maze. It's not just a highway. So we have to, okay, well, we're going to take a right here and we're going to try to talk about a little bit about the sleep because that seems to be the most bothersome right now. Do you see what I mean? And then maybe we'll talk about how it's difficult for them to do much. So let's let's try to make the homework instead of it being journaling, let's make the homework shower and eat. And so we're just kind of, we're finding our way. We're finding a sneakier way to get into the problem and get like, it's. I've talked about this a lot, like breaking into the house. Like sometimes we try to go right in the front door and we're met with too many defense mechanisms. Like the person that's asking this question, my my assumption is that their defense mechanism is I'm not sick enough. I don't deserve to get care. I feel too overwhelmed to talk about things in therapy. And then I'm overreacting. I'm not, I don't actually need it. You know, something to that effect or therapy's too scary. I can't say these things out loud, whatever it is. So we run into these defense mechanisms when we try to come in the front door. So instead we could just talk about the fact that it's hard for you to open up. And, you know, I'm curious what you think the week prior to therapy, what those thoughts are like versus like the day before. And we can ask different questions without asking directly. And we're kind of like trying to sneak in the back door or a side window that's left cracked. And so we're just trying to find a way to break in. And sometimes just talking about the issue that we're having in therapy, not the issue that we're not bringing up, can open some of those doors and windows and we can get in. And I don't know if that makes sense. You guys let me know. But that's how I think about it is sometimes we can get our defenses down. They can, we can relax by just not talking directly about the thing that we're having a tough time talking about. And I mean, it makes sense if you think about it that way. If I'm really defensive about anyone bringing up stuff about my family and I, I find myself digging my heels in and holding my ground and shutting down or dissociating or whatever it is that I do, right? However, I, whatever defense mechanism I have, then if someone doesn't ask me about my family, but they ask me more about me growing up and um, how that relates to what I'm going through now. And, and if, you know, if I've seen patterns like this in the past, or maybe I'm in a bad relationship now, like have you ever had relationships like that in the past, you can kind of ask other questions that end up guiding you back towards your family without asking about that. And so in a way, it's like we've diffused that bomb. And so I think that that could be kind of helpful in this situation where you just talk about the issue instead of directly about what's going like, what it is that you don't bring up. Um, Talk about the fact that you always think you're overreacting right before session. And yeah, and see, and it's good that you warm up after a while. It could just be anxiety driven as well. A lot of my patients talk about just coming into therapy in and of itself is anxiety provoking, sitting in the waiting room, waiting for their hour to start makes them nervous. And so, you know, there are some things like that too, that I, that could be part of it. And that could, you could use some call, like some resources to help calm your system down. Um, whether that's breathing techniques, mantras, fidget toys, silly putty, um, anything like that. And so, yeah. And then I also want to mention, because the comment below this question where they said that even when I write down bullet topics that I want to address, I convince myself they're trivial things and I won't say anything during my session. That sounds, it sounds a little bit similar, but it also begs the question of uh, self-worth and confidence. Because it kind of, to me, that, that, that statement 
it could be the same thing, but it could also be, I just don't believe that I'm worth getting better. It could be shame driven. Um, something's so in, in wrong with me that, that it, it's not even worth it. You know, it, it might not be because they said the trivial thing. So you think that they're not a big enough deal. So again, it's like that downplaying that invalidating that we're doing to ourselves. So we're already invalidating our own experience, telling ourselves that it's not, it's not an issue, even though we already thought it was. And so, I would encourage this person, since you're already writing things down, give that to the therapist. Don't don't try to read it. Just try to give it to your therapist and see if that kind of circumvents it. And then just noticing the way that we're talking to ourselves. I talk about this all the time, how important that conversation that we have inside our brain about ourselves and our situation is critical to our, I don't even know if you want to call it recovery, but to our own healing and progress and process. And so if we can pay attention to that conversation, because that conversation, when you're convincing yourself that these are trivial things, I'm sure it's a pretty shitty conversation. You're like, oh, you know, I felt super depressed and thought about suicide the other day. Oh, that's not a big deal. You don't need to bring that up in therapy. You're overreacting. It lasted for like a minute. Come on. That's not a very nice, validating, supportive, compassionate response. Is there a way that we could make that maybe a little bit more compassionate where it's like, you know, it was upsetting in the moment. Might not be a big deal now, but I still think I should talk about it. Okay. It doesn't mean it's a big deal, but maybe, maybe we should tell our therapist and let them decide. Maybe we should leave it up to the professionals. I don't know. Maybe that's the way you can talk yourself out of it. But I think that having those better, healthier conversations with ourselves, as well as giving over those bullet points to your therapist could really, uh, really help. Okay. Moving on to question number three. Hi, Katie. Why do therapists think of, or what do therapists think of adults who self-harm? I know your opinion might not be representative of all therapists, all therapists, but I just wanted to hear your thoughts on it. Thank you for all that you do. Of course. Um, I, I know, I know there's this stigma out in the world that people think that self-injury only occurs in like teenager, teenage girls. Even I've heard that a lot. It's just not true. By and large, I've had patients all across the spectrum, uh, women in their fifties, men, um, in their forties, uh, teenage boys, teenage girls. I've had the whole spectrum of people self-injuring because the thing about self, uh, self-harm is it's no different than alcoholism or eating disorders or drug addiction. It's a way to cope with what's happening in our life. It's a it's a way for us to numb out and check out from all that we may be feeling or experiencing. And it's often the only way we know how to cope because no one modeled healthy behavior. We never were supported in the right way. So we feel like all like kind of going back to the question before, like we can feel like all the things that actually that upset us are really trivial. And so then we internalize that pain. We don't have anywhere for it to go or anything to do about it. And then we try to get a release through using some form of unhealthy coping skill, like self-injury, you know, eating disorders, drug or alcohol addiction or abuse. Um, and so my thoughts about an adult who self harms is that they probably haven't been able to find the right kind of support and understanding to overcome it, or maybe have never been in therapy for it. Because the thing about as we get older, all that says to me is that there's been, it depends on why, like the root of the cause, because I've even had patients who didn't even start self injuring until they were much older. Um, but if we've been self injuring for a really long time, then I'm curious, like, have you been in therapy before? Why didn't that work? Uh, what do we think the cause of this is? When did it start? You know, those are all questions that I'm going to get at. And I don't know, I don't really think of it any differently. Self injure a patient who self injures is just a patient who self injures. And I need to figure out what the where the urge come from comes from, what the root of that cause is. Is it based in trauma? Is it based in uh, 
I'm not the abuse isn't trauma, but like childhood abuse is it based, is it based in like an, uh, an assault that happened recently? Where did it, it come from? Is it, did our whole life explode? Like was our, uh, spouse cheating on us and they divorced us and we had to move out of our home and everything was just in disarray and maybe we were broke. I don't know, like what happened. So I'm curious a lot about that. And then we just have to figure out what steps we can take, what other coping skills we can use to replace it and how, how can we work to heal the original wound that was a catalyst to this behavior? Does that make sense? So I'm always just trying to find the root of the root. Like where'd this urge come from? Why is it here? How long has it been here? When did it start? All of that stuff. And then we heal that wound. And then the the reason that the self-injury urges still exist isn't there. And so there's no need for the, it to still be happening, if that makes sense. And so those are really my thoughts. I mean, I know, I do want to recognize that I know a lot of therapists don't know shit about it. They don't understand self-injury. I had to fight the urge to do, if you guys haven't watched Ozark, I love that show. But one of my characters, uh, Ruth, in that show says, you don't know shit about fuck. And that's what I want to say about this is some therapists don't know shit about fuck. They don't understand self-injury. They think that it's always a suicide attempt. They think that it's attention seeking. They think all the things that are super stigmatizing and all myths and lies. And it's really unfortunate. And I think the reason that this happens is, first of all, therapists uh, are not trained in it. Like there's I feel very fortunate that I worked at the eating disorder treatment center that I did because a lot of the patients there also self-injured and I got to learn a lot about it from my patients and from my supervisor at the time. And so that was really, that was really the helpful part of it. And that was what helps, I believe has helped me be good at treating this still today and hearing from my um, from my viewers as well. A lot of you shared your stories uh, so bravely and that's helped me better understand it. Older therapists and maybe even younger therapists, although non-suicidal self-injury is in the DSM under the areas that need more research and whatever. And so maybe they're teaching more about it now in school, but by and large, they only teach self-injury as a part of borderline personality disorder. And that in and of itself is a disservice to what's going on because not all my patients who self-injure have borderline personality disorder. A lot of them have an eating disorder and then when they can't do the, use their eating disorder, all of a sudden they start self-injuring. Has nothing to do with borderline. There's no attachment issues there. Um, you know, it could be, it can happen for a lot of reasons. And so I think it's that the lack of education and the lack of full understanding across the board, the lack of people talking about it. I mean, the fact that I can't even talk about it on YouTube without it not being monetized tells us something about our like society and what's going on. Why is that so off-putting to you? You know, I beg to differ. I think it's more common than we realize. Anyway, I could really... I could really go to town on this one, guys. But I think that that might be because there's no education about it. A lot of therapists assume other things and assume the worst and often refer patients out when they hear about it. And I think that the more that you and I keep talking about it, the more that I pressure my school because I talk to Pepperdine a lot and asking them about things and pushing back. Um, I think the more that we do that, the more we can push for better education and better understanding of issues that are stigmatized. And I, a borderline personality disorder has its own stigma, t- uh, t- stigma inside the therapeutic world in the professional land too. And so I think that those, the misunderstandings and the the misinformation and the stigmas are things we still have to battle, unfortunately. But th- those are my thoughts. And then that's what I know other therapists think too. But there's, in my mind, there's no age limit on self-injury. I mean, everybody, I don't know. I've seen it, like I said, across the board. So no judgments. Everybody deals in their own way. And we just have to figure out why you're dealing 
in that way and work to heal that. Okay, question number four. Hi, Katie, what's the best way to take care of your own mental health? If you have, a, if you have loved ones with serious mental health problems, my brother is a recovering addict, and both of my parents have pretty serious depression. I want to be there for them. But do I keep, um, but do I keep myself from being overwhelmed? Oh, but maybe but how do I keep myself from being overwhelmed? Okay. So there's this, um, I forget, I think it's just family systems therapy is what it's called. I don't do it all the time. because I don't see families a lot. I see individuals mostly in some couples, if I can help it, I don't really like to see any couples, just FYI, just because they come in way too late. And one always talks over the other. And it's really tricky and difficult. And I don't enjoy it. And often they, you know, they're not invested. Um, but that's a conversation for another time. When it comes to family systems, it's really interesting because there's always, there are always these roles that we each fill. Like there can be, you can look these things up, like the hero child, which is the child that's supposed to like rescue the rest of the family. And these can be like, these are usually parentified children, uh, children who feel responsible for taking care of everybody else except for themselves. There's also like the scapegoat child. Like it's usually the one child that has a problem or a scapegoat could be an adult too. It doesn't have to be a child. It could be a parent, like whoever's the addict. My guess would be that your, your brother's a recovering addict. He was probably the scapegoat for a lot of, a lot of your life where it means that your family channeled all of their energy and focus into his issues and his addiction. And that was the the elephant in the room of, of your family dynamics where you didn't talk about it. It was embarrassing. You kind of walked around it until it became such a, the elephant grew to, to fill up the, the room so much so that you have to do all these certain behaviors just to wiggle around it. Does that make sense? I don't know if that makes sense, but you can look up, you know, family systems, family dynamics, hero, child, scapegoat family roles. Uh, and so anyways, they're the problem with families and families who have addicts in particular is what is called codependency and difficulty with boundaries. Now codependency, I want to get the, I've, I've tried to, um, let me pull up the definition just so I'm saying it properly. So codependency is a behavioral condition in a relationship where one person enables another person's addiction, poor mental health, immaturity, irresponsibility, or overachievement. And then it goes into like the core characteristics. So you're going to enable another person's issue. Meaning if we have an addict in our home, let's say, let's say your brother was an um, alcoholic. The codependent in you means that you're going to do everything to keep the home together. You're going to try to keep your family together. You're going to do everything to make sure that they're fed. You're going to try to pour out the alcohol so that they don't drink it anymore. You're, which I know that say you're like, well, that doesn't make sense. Like, you know, we're not enabling that. That means they're not enabling their addiction. No, you're allowing them to survive while they're still an addict. You're not making them responsible for everything they do. Oftentimes when we have addicts in our family, we all do these behaviors around what they're doing in order to allow them to keep doing it without realizing it. This is like a very uh, subconscious slash passive thing. This isn't actively what we do. But what happens is that we tend to get as a result in enmeshed relationships where there's no boundaries. What's theirs is mine and what's mine is theirs. And there's no differentiation between me and them because we've never learned healthy boundaries in our family growing up. Does this make sense? And so what's that's what's happening here is because your brother's a recovering addict, I would believe that this is a problem you're running into where you feel responsible for other people. You struggle to differentiate what other people's feelings are from your own. 
and you are, it's almost impossible for you to put yourself first. That would be my guess. And so what I would encourage you to do is truly to go to, I I think there's, I don't know if NA has an Al-Anon component, but Al-Anon is like AA for the family. I recommend it all the time. It's great for us to get to hear from other people who have similar issues because there's something magical about hearing someone say something that's so relating to you and you can, for some reason, hear it because it's not your story, if that makes sense. It's like having that be an external thing and having that distance between us and that other person allows us to see our story and our issue in a whole new light. And it really sheds light on the fact that that we we have our own illness as family members of addicts and that that illness is the codependency and to prevent ourselves from getting into these relationships again and continuing to not be in touch with ourselves. Because if we think about it, if the addict or even your depressed parents, let's say, um, if their needs always came first, that means we don't really know how to check in with ourselves. We don't actually maybe know what we need or what's okay for us or not okay for us. And we often just live in this state of exhaustion, overwhelm and stress. And that's how we that's all we know, because they're more important. And I know that kind of sounds crazy. And you're like, you know, it, it feels like maybe I'm jumping to conclusions. But just trust me on this. We have our own illness when there's an addict in our family, period. There's a way that we've begun to operate and tried to manage. Um, we could be the, uh, I forget the word, I have to look up the family dynamic names. But there's also the the one child that like lashes out, you like speak for the family. So you can be like really angry and aggressive at everybody else, because you're the one that's actually speaking the emotions that no one else is speaking. And there's that role. So there's, it's just it's a lot going on. And so I know that that's probably not what you wanted me to say. But that is why you're struggling with what you're struggling with. And so the best way to take care of your own mental health problems is to put up these healthy boundaries, meaning it's not your responsibility to make sure your brother continues to recover. It's not your responsibility to make sure that your parents' depression gets treatment and that they're okay. We can care about people and check in on them and not be responsible. And I want you to try to imagine what that line, maybe we journal about what that line would look like. What's the line between me caring and, and me feeling responsible? Do I feel uh, this jerk, this like knee jerk reaction inside of my body telling me that I need to go over there and spend time with them when I know I'm actually pretty tired? Are we able to tap into how we feel? I would encourage you each and every day to uh, maybe just do some bullet points or a little bit of journaling about like, am I tired or energized? Am I hungry? Am I full? Am I, uh, can I name one emotion I'm feeling right now? I don't know. That would be a good start. I just want you to try to learn how to tap into what you need because we can be there for family and give them a call and see them. I don't know, once a week, depending on how close they live, but maybe once a month, maybe we talk to them, you know, every so often when it's good for us, if they call us and we are tired, we do not have to pick up. I know that makes you uncomfortable. I know right then you're like, well, what if they, you're not responsible. The only person you're responsible for is yourself right now. And we have to put ourselves first. And someone left a comment below this question where they talked about how, you know, their therapist always says you can't like drink from an empty cup. And I've talked about it in the same fashion where I say you can't pour from an empty pitcher. We can't give them what we don't have ourselves. If we don't have compassion, understanding, uh, support, and 
I don't know, personal insight, we can't give them that we're actually not useful to them. And so if we're not able to do it, because we need to check in with ourselves and put ourselves first, at least do it knowing that if you don't put yourself first, you're actually no good to anybody else either. And I'll be honest, if I don't take care of myself, I'm no good to anybody. I can't do podcasts. I can't do my live streams. I can't do videos because I can't focus. I'm not happy and I'm frustrated and I need to talk to my therapist (laughs) and I need to take care of myself. I need to go for some walks. I need to sleep in a little more. There are things that we're going to have to do to take care of ourselves. It's, it's just basic self-care, basic resiliency building. And so I have a video about resiliency if you want to learn about that. Um, and really, the best way to take care of yourself is to put a little distance in between you and your family and do the things, start tapping in to figure out how you're feeling. And then doing some of those base, I would start with basic self-care, meaning are we sleeping enough? Are we eating balanced meals at least three times a day? Are we showering regularly? Are we getting in some exercise, even if it's just, you know, going for a short walk? How's our, our home life? Is our, is our home a mess? Are we able to do things at work? You know, start thinking of just the, the basics of what's required of you every day. Let's work on those first. And I hope that that helps. And I also want you to know that I, I know how hard this is, okay? I don't, I don't pretend by any stretch of the imagination to think that that's easy, that what I just talked about is something that you can just snap out of. These are like well, well-worn patterns, right? They're, they're very, it's a, there's a comfortability to that family dance that you've been doing and to change it up is going to be uncomfortable at first. And we're going to feel there's going to be that judgment because codependency and enmeshment do not leave room for us to be independent. They don't allow for us to put ourselves first. And so we're going to have those automatic thoughts of, huh? I'm an asshole. How dare I not reply to them? This so rude of me. I I really uh, will have that. And I want you to in your head, have a little Katie pop up. That's like, you know what? You got to put yourself first. You're no good to anybody else. If you don't do what you need first. That's why we're not picking up is because we have to do what's right for us first. Otherwise, we can't help them. You know, it's not negotiable. We have to our we have to take care of ourselves so we can help other people. You know, um, it's I know it's gonna be difficult to fight back, but you can do this. Okay, question number five. Hi, Katie, I hope you're doing great. I am so far. It's 11am and things are good. Can you talk about having a hard time naming things? I tend to surround things I want to talk about. I rationalize them. Um, but when it comes to putting a name to them, it gets really hard. This happened to me in therapy while trying to talk about my sexual abuse history, actually saying being abused got really tough. Also, while talking about a girl I liked, my therapist almost had to pull out of my mouth through the screen after several sessions talking about it, the words, I'm gay. I can kind of talk about those things for hours, but it's really hard for me to name them. It's like making them more real. And even though they are, I think I'm okay with them, specifically being gay, I still struggle a lot. I hope this makes sense. Thanks for everything. Of course, it makes sense. I've talked about this a lot and you're not alone by any stretch of the imagination. First of all, it's got a ton of thumbs ups and a ton of comments, but also this is super common. Putting a name, names have power. There's some kind of clout or uh, force that comes along with using a name. Like, uh, excuse me, I had to burp. Uh, Like saying the word rape, saying the word abuse saying even for my patients who were having difficulty in their marriages saying the word divorce when they're like we're getting a divorce is hard 
breakups. It sounds silly to say, but some words, because of how emotionally connected they are to us or how much how much of our emotions in our life is like rolled up into that word, saying that word just becomes this whole nother level of vulnerability and this whole other level of honesty. And it can be really, really difficult to say it. And it doesn't necessarily mean, like you said, I'm not, I'm not like ashamed of being gay. So it's not that that word itself is bad. It's what it represents. It can be, it can have, um, it's more about us and less about the thing, if this makes sense. So like when it comes to the being gay thing, it could be, it's hard to say because of what that word in society has been deemed as or what the coming out process maybe was like for us. Maybe it was difficult. What people could assume or what we used to struggle with as a kid, there could be so many things wrapped up in this word and it can have nothing to do with us being ashamed of it. It just has a lot to do with the power and the weight of that word. And so this is very, very common. Um, I think, what, I, what was there a question? Talk about, oh, have just talk about having a hard time. Yeah, I think I, I don't, I don't have any issue with it. I, like your therapist, try to push my patients along as they talk about things and challenging them to, as you surround it, because like you're saying, you talk like around the word. So we'll talk about everything else around the word over and over and never say the actual word. And as a therapist, I will call it out. I usually will say something to the effect of like, well, in my opinion, that sounds like assault or what happened to you sounds like child abuse. And then I'll ask, do you agree? Do you think that that is what happened? And then I'll mention, because as a therapist, you got to call it out. I'll say, I've noticed that you haven't used that word. Is there a reason? And I think that's really the work is like, what's the reason be, be curious, not judgmental. Be curious about why you haven't said that word. What is it for you? Because I'm just making these assumptions, like talking about the emotions wrapped up in it or the if it's a if it's a word like abuse or rape or assault or things like that, all of that, the trauma makes it really hard, the shame and embarrassment associated with trauma that just it's it's really complicated and maybe that's it. But when it comes to being gay, you said like I'm not I don't have any trouble with that. I'm not, I'm okay with it. Like what is wrapped up in that for you? And just being open and curious about it, about the process, about why the certain words are difficult because there's other words we don't have any trouble with, right? So many other words, but it's something about the ones that we avoid that actually tell us something. It's very, very helpful information to share with your therapist. If you're able to journal about this, or if you're able to talk it out in session, I promise you, it's going to give you such amazing results. It's going to give you a lot more information and that will help us move forward as we process through the, the tough things and better understand maybe it's our difficulty uh, being vulnerable. Maybe uh, it's the internal judgment we need to work on and maybe it's like building up our confidence. Maybe it's the shame that came along with the abuse that we need to better understand and, and work to heal, work to overcome you know, we'll learn more about it. And that will kind of give us a better roadmap or a better treatment plan for our work in, in session. And I think that hopefully that will move it forward. But just know that that's super, super common. Uh, it's, I usually, like I said, just call it out. There's nothing wrong with it. It actually is helpful. And it gives us more information so that we can figure out how best to move forward and what best to work on next kind of thing. So yeah. Okay. Question number six, let me get another drink of coffee. 
Okay. It says, hi, Katie, how can you differentiate between feeling that something is wrong or off and being anxious? Hmm. I've had uh, many times. Oh, I had many times felt that way that way and something inevitably inevitably went wrong, even though I didn't pay attention to those thoughts. Does that mean I'm tricking myself with anxious thoughts or I'm overlooking signs of something actually needing to be cautious of? This is a great question and something that is tricky for a lot of us. Just on the, the Patreon live stream yesterday, I talked about someone saying that they didn't really know how to identify different feelings. Like, is this... Uh, I forget the ones that they said, but like, is this joy or is joy and excitement or is, uh, I forget if it's stress or something like that, right? So what am I feeling? How do I identify what it is? And how do I know which one I'm experiencing? Am I being overly cautious or is this just my anxiety? Because anxiety, as we know, usually comes out of nowhere. I can be laying in bed feeling totally fine. And all of a sudden my heart starts to race. I'm not moving. That doesn't make sense physiologically worry thoughts start to swirl and I start to sweat, right? So that can just happen because it could be a worry thought that started it. It could be nothing. And so the way to actually differentiate feelings and to recognize whether, you know, something's wrong or off or if our, if it's our anxiety, I would just for safety's sake, I would always err on the side of something's off. Let's get out of there. I'd rather you be safe than sorry. And so let's do that. However, I think the best way is just to be curious and check our facts. Okay. So I've talked about being curious a lot. And I think so too often we judge situations, we judge ourselves, we judge how we feel, we judge what we're thinking about, and we judge, 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 judge. And that doesn't allow for us to learn much, right? If we're always judging, we're not able to say, oh, I always thought that feeling was this, but I guess it's that interesting and be interested. I'm interested. Wow, I learned something. Judgment says, you're so stupid. Why do you think that? Ugh, and we move on, right? There's no learning. It's just, I'm wrong. Then we, you know, we can internalize that. I'm stupid. I'm wrong. I never get things right, whatever. So let's just be curious about this, okay? Maybe write down, maybe journal, like, what does anxiety feel like for you? When you know it's anxiety, when you're at home and there's nothing going on that could be wrong or weird, how does anxiety feel? Like for me, when I'm feeling anxious, it feels like my heart racing. My It's like my thoughts have their, I don't know, they're running away with themselves. I have no control over them. And I can't relax at all, even if I try. And I sweat. <laughs> so that's what I experience when I experience anxious thoughts and anxiety. But what does it feel like for you? Everyone's going to be different. There's no judgments here. Do you feel like you can't breathe? Sometimes I feel like I can't catch my breath. So that can happen. Do you feel panicked? What is it? So so be be curious about it. Pay attention. And then we're going to have to check our facts. So so often we jump right to conclusions and feel like we have to be able to know what we're feeling and what emotion it is and name it and put a pin in it and call it what it is. We can feel that pressure. I've got to do this. This is what it is. Da, 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 da. You don't have to. We can take our time, we'll be curious first, and then we'll check our facts. So when something happens, if we feel like something's wrong or off, and we're not sure if it's anxiety or not, let's consider what's happening. Let's consider what what the facts are. So let's say I'm at a party, which you shouldn't be because COVID's real, but I'm at a party and I feel, I start to feel my heart race and I start to feel a little uncomfortable and I look around and everything is fine. 
my friends are giggling, some are playing a game, um, two people are talking over in a corner, and there's just nothing shady going on. There's nothing scary about this. Look out the window. Everything is fine. That would be my anxiety, right? I looked, I checked my facts. I could even, if I wanted, depending on the situation, I could ask a friend, do you think something's weird here? I can't decide if I'm just having a panic attack or being anxious or if something's really off. They can be a fact checker too. But let's say on the other hand, I'm at a party and it's a different party and I start to just feel uncomfortable and off. And then I realize that there's like people in the corner that are like really getting down and dirty with each other and that makes me uncomfortable. And then I swear some people are like doing drugs, but I don't see it and I don't like that. And that makes me uncomfortable. And then I realize that my designated driver is like doing shots at the bar and I'm like, "Mm, I should probably call myself an Uber or a Lyft and get out of here right? We checked our facts. There's a reason that you feel like something's off or something's weird and not okay. It's not our anxiety, right? We've checked our facts, you know, and then we can leave. And so just take your time with it. Don't feel like you have to always know right away. I know if there's situations where you feel like I could be in danger really quickly, just get out of there. Better safe than sorry. But hopefully we have the time to take a couple of minutes maybe, you know, two to five minutes and we take a, a gander around. We, we think and remember about some things that occurred earlier and what's happening. We check those facts and then we make a decision. And as you do this, it's like a new muscle, right? We're practicing it and we're building it up. So know that as it'll be hard at first and you're going to, maybe you're always going to want to leave and feel like it's anxiety. That's okay. We're just learning again, no judgment. We're just being curious. We're just checking our facts and we're going to get better and better and better at deciding what thing is a fact and what's fiction, but it's just going to take a little while because also we can make assumptions, right? Well, my friend went away a minute ago. Uh, Maybe she's in trouble. I'm talking about the party situation again. I should go check on her. Sure, you can go check on her, but she might might have also just gone to the bathroom, but it's not going to hurt to check on her, right? So then we check. It's okay. Okay. I checked that. I'm good. I'm not making an assumption. I checked the facts legitimately. And so anyway, those are just some things I think that that will kind of help you figure out and slowly get better at differentiating between like is something wrong or off or being anxious or any other feeling. Like I said, yesterday at the Patreon live stream, someone was talking about this as well. And they were saying how they're using feelings charts and those aren't helping and feelings charts will not work when it comes to this because we aren't sure what it is. So we have to be curious and check our facts and uh, get to know ourselves better. And then the feelings charts will start to work. Um, If we can't differentiate between things, we can't write down what it is, right? We can't circle it on a feelings chart because we don't know. So that's okay. Not everything is going to work for everybody. So don't feel like you have to make everything work. We can just be curious and check those facts. Okay. Let's get a little sip of water and then we'll get into question number seven. And I thought I had 10 questions, you guys. I do this sometimes. But one of the questions, because there was an enter in the way that they asked it, I didn't catch it. And so it it said I had 10, but we only have nine today and I apologize. Okay. Question number seven says, hey, Katie, I hope you're having a great week. Does an eating disorder have to be about body image and your weight? I've recently been struggling with anxiety and depression, but lately for about a month, I am never hungry. Or I'll try to eat something and the smell will put me off from eating it so that I won't eat anything. Or I'll take a couple of bites of food and be content and not eat anymore. In my head, it's not a body image issue at all. I don't know why this is happening, but my GP seems to think that I'm starving myself and I may have an eating disorder. Am I in denial? Okay. So a lot of eating disorders have nothing to do with body image. I'm just going to throw that out there. 
Not all eating disorders have anything to do with body image. A lot of my patients who struggle with any eating disorder across the board, this isn't just one type of eating disorder. Some of my anorexic patients don't, it's not that they think that they're overweight or they care how they look or they focus in on their thighs or their stomach or their butt or their arms or what have you. It's not always about that. And that's not a required uh, symptom. Okay. So no, eating disorders do not always have to be about body image or weight. Because um, some of I mean, the part of the diagnostic criteria, and I don't even want to pull it out, because I think a lot of ways eating disorder diagnostic criteria is so limiting. And then if we don't fit into one, then we are into OSFED, otherwise specified feeding or eating disorder. And I hate that diagnosis. It just doesn't. It's like a catch all. And then there's the then the eating disorder takes that information. It's like, well, you're not sick enough. It's bullshit. And I get frustrated. But at least binge eating disorder was added because that is an issue that I haven't been able to get insurances to cover for years. And it's really pisses me off. Okay. Rant over. Moving into the question, does an eating disorder have to be about body image and weight? No. The way to know if we have an eating disorder is pretty simple. Do we spend most of our time, meaning I would just even say over 50% of our day is spent thinking about food, either trying to eat it, trying to not eat it, trying to use our behaviors in some way or another, anything relating to food or eating disorder behavior, meaning if we purge, whether that's using laxatives, whether that's actual throwing up, whether that's through exercise, we can purge in a lot of different ways, you guys. So are we focusing on purging? Are we focusing on compensatory behaviors like the the exercise and stuff? Are we focused on uh, getting the food that we want to have our binge? Are we focused on getting people to leave our apartment so we have the space and time and the privacy to do the things we want to do for our eating disorder? Like all of that is eating disorder behavior and eating disorder thought and eating disorder process. And I'll even go as far as to say, if we just think about food, getting food, not getting food, eating food, not eating food for more than 50% of our day, it's an eating disorder. I don't think about food until I'm making it. It's like if I'm like I had breakfast right before I did this. So I'm not I'm not hungry at the time. Like I'm satiated, right? I had my eggs and toast and I'm happy and I have my coffee. So I'm not thinking about lunch because it's not here and I'm not hungry and I'm not putting any effort into food. Maybe in about an hour or two, I'll start to get hungry and I'll start to think, oh, what should I have? What should I eat for lunch? Oh, okay. And then I might forget about it. And then, oop, the pang of hunger comes and I'm like, okay, let's go make that sandwich or whatever. So that only... The, my thinking and procuring food maybe takes up like, depending on how long it takes me to cook something, but even then I'm not really thinking about the food. I'm usually like doing work while something's on the stove or warming up or whatever. But let's say it takes me about, it's 5% of my day, maybe 10% of my day. People with eating disorders, it's like 50. It's actually usually like 70, 80, 90% of their day, but even 50% more, I feel like is a little bit disordered and something that I would encourage you to get some support about. And the fact that you feel like you're never hungry, I would be interested because I always argue this with my patients. They're like, well, I'm just not that hungry. And I'm like, I don't believe you. I love you, but I don't believe you because you don't actually listen to your body. And depression can take away our hunger also. And that could be part of it. I do want to recognize that, that this could be part of your depression because depression can affect our hunger fullness cues. But that's the problem. Therein lies the problem is that our mental illness is affecting our ability to know when we're hungry and when we're full. 
And that's worth looking into. And that's worth seeing a therapist and seeing, uh, you know, getting a mental health professional on your side. So I would definitely look into it. I definitely want to learn more. I also know my patients who are anxious can get really anxious and not be hungry for a little bit of time. But that hunger usually comes back. And the fact that you feel like you're never hungry, I would uh, I would argue that I think you're emotionally full and you're letting your emotions uh, invade your hunger fullness cues. That's very common. And so I would, I think seeing a dietitian and getting on a meal plan would help keep you, you know, better, not better regulated, but just on point so that even if you're not hungry, because you're, uh, I'll let you know, most of my patients from that are recovering from an eating disorder are not able to recognize their hunger fullness cues in a real way. And that's why we have them follow meal plans for quite a little while. And if me even saying that you need to follow a meal plan and eat three meals and snacks every day sends you into a tailspin, more evidence that it's an eating disorder. So throw that out there because I, I can just I can just sense it that if you know how your brain could be working and that's how my patient's brains work. Um, but yeah, taking a couple of bites and being content is not normal and being super sensitive to smell and stuff that happens from some people. But I think that a lot of it has to do with eating disorders or maybe your depression, like I said, but not ever being hungry is very suspicious for me. And I would, I would want you to tap into how you're feeling emotionally. Are you feeling overwhelmed emotionally? Because a lot of times that's what will push us over the edge. And that's what will make it hard for us to check in with our own hunger fullness cues and stuff like that. And that's why it's an eating disorder. But anyway, they don't always have to be about body image and weight. Eating disorders are really just us focusing on the food because we don't want to focus on anything else. And that's just, that's just what it is. That's why I talk about them as coping skills, right? Because if I focus on eating or not eating, I don't have to focus on the fact that I've been having flashbacks lately or that my uh, life feels out of control or that my uh, roommate is a jerk or, you know, I just don't have to deal with any of life's real issues if I focus on food. And that's, that's why it's a coping skill. Okay. Question number eight. Hi, Katie. How do we stop avoiding things and at the same time start to listen to what we want more? Hmm. How do we stop avoiding things? And at the same time, start to, okay. I have a complex PTSD and am a big avoider. So I'm told by my treatment team that I should be more gentle with myself, but also that I should stop avoiding things, which doesn't make sense to me. Normally, I try to do things and can't. And when I can't, I get angry at myself. Okay, there's, that's the problem. Okay. Now, how am I supposed to be understanding afterwards? Uh, but I don't, oh, oh, but now I'm supposed to be understanding afterwards, but I don't get that. How am I supposed to change my behavior if I'm nice to me after doing the wrong thing? When should we push ourselves harder? And when should we allow ourselves to not be perfect? Both my counselor and therapist couldn't answer it. So I'd be grateful for your input or anyone else's. Okay. So love this question because you, you answered it yourself without realizing. So yes, you are supposed to be understanding afterwards because, and back to what you'd said here, when should we push ourselves harder? When should we allow ourselves to not be perfect? We should always allow ourselves to not be perfect. Okay. Always, every single time we are not perfect. We're human. It's part of the human condition. We fuck up. We do things wrong. It's okay. That's where that compassion and understanding comes from. Even if you can't do things, the fact that you tried is all that matters. You have to talk about that in therapy. I really tried and I couldn't. And this is what held me back. And it was really frustrating. We can be frustrated and not judgmental. 
the the self-hatred that you're allowing to live in your brain, the judgment and the shit talking isn't making things feel better. It isn't helping you at all. It's actually making you feel worse, right? And it can hold you back a little bit more. And so that's really what's happening here. And that's what they're really talking about is instead of feeling like you have to be perfect because you're not doing the wrong thing. You're just trying to do something that's really difficult and you're not always able to, okay? You're trying to do something difficult and you're not always able to. No one is perfect. So what I would encourage you to come up with are some compassionate and patient statements that you can say to yourself when things don't work out. You could even imagine you're saying it to a really close friend. What would you say to me if you gave me homework and I came back and was like, you know, I really tried, I really tried to like talk nicer to myself about this thing. And I just failed. I spiral into a pit of despair. And then, and then I just cried and went to sleep. And I felt, I just feel so shitty about it. What would you say? Well, at least you tried. That gives us more information. Um, I think that maybe that's a little bit, we're moving too quickly. Let's take a step back. Are there things that we can do to take care of your basic self-care? There, we, we have to have these better conversations. I want you to come up with some things that are better conversations, things you can say to yourself when you're not perfect, which spoilers is every time we're just not perfect. That's not how this works. And I know that in our trauma response, we have a lot of, I've said this earlier, but we have a lot of shame and embarrassment. And shame, if you don't know, is a very different emotion from just embarrassment or guilt. Shame is something's wrong. I'm so broken. I'm unfixable. Like something inside of me is just wrong. I am wrong, right? Guilt is, I did something wrong. I feel bad about that. Embarrassment is, I wish I hadn't done that thing. I'm embarrassed that people saw that, or I'm embarrassed that I did that thing. Shame is, I'm wrong. Does that make sense? I think that's really important because complex PTSD and PTSD in general comes along with a lot of shame, like a whole lot. And so it sounds like in your struggle to to feel better, you're letting shame pull you back down because every time you don't do things perfectly, which we all know we're not perfect, then that shame spiral comes in where you're like, well, I'm just never going to get better. I'm so terrible at this. And you're allowing that. And so we're going to have to try to thought stop and we're going to have to try to make that into a little bit nicer of a conversation. And so let me make sure I answer this question. How do we stop avoiding things at the same time start to listen to what we want more? So you're supposed to just be a little bit kinder. Yeah. So after trying something and it not going perfectly, I want you to practice some bridge statements from that negative shit talking that's happening. Start noting what that negative shit talking is that's going on. Write those things down. Pay attention. Don't just let them live in your head rent free. We got to pay attention to that. What are they? And and what what conversation are we having? And then let's move it over into those bridge statements. I have a video about bridge statements. You can watch it and check it out. And we're just going to move those things over like it's possible that I'm not as bad as I think. I'm open to the idea that some that I'm not broken, that things can get better. You know, those types of things. We need to use those to move it into a more positive place so we can be a little bit kinder with ourselves while we're working on it. Okay. Final question, question number nine. And again, I'm sorry, I usually do 10, but that enter just, it's off. Says, hey, Katie, how do you deal with parents who aren't supportive of you going to therapy? The thing is, I'm stuck back home after studying and working in the family business. I make my own money working during the week, and I decided to go to therapy after a breakdown two months ago. My dad seemed understanding for my first appointment, but has shown that he doesn't agree with it, sometimes saying things that make me doubt going. Oof. 
It's making me frustrated because I do depend on them for, for living and even for the car ride. I'm trying to do me and I've told them I don't want to discuss what I talk about in therapy, a boundary. I love it. And that's helping me, but it just takes a toll, especially the night before having to remind them of it. I'm so conflicted. Thank you for all you do. Okay. The, first of all, I'm sorry. I, this is so common and it fucking sucks. And I hear from, I hear from people all the time, especially for those of us who are younger and live at home permanently and don't have our own money. God, this fucking sucks. First of all, I would talk about this in therapy and bring it up because it's a big, it's a big issue. And it's something that I would, I would argue and be very curious if I was your therapist, I would want to know how long this kind of conversation has been going on. And, and, and if this, this type of behavior has shown itself in other ways. And what I mean by that is, are there other ways and other things in life that they didn't agree with that you just decided you wouldn't do because it was easier than fighting them on it? And I'd just be curious about their their supportive nature, if it's conditional support and or not. And anyway, I have questions about that. And I think that that's part of why I would bring it up in therapy, because it might give your therapist a little bit more insight into you and how and why you act and do the way that you act and do. Um, so yeah, so there's that. But we cannot convince people of our need for therapy or the benefits of therapy or any of that. It's that's not up to us. Okay. We can be open to conversations. So if they, you know, say something like, Oh, I just don't think you need it anymore. You can be like, I'm open to talking about it and why it's helpful. And have a few statements like you can prepare this ahead of time, have a few statements that you said out loud to yourself. So you feel comfortable, you can write them out something to the effect of, you know, it's helpful to get another opinion. They're helping me with tools and techniques and ways to manage some of the times that I feel overwhelmed or stressed out, right? We keep it very generic, very simple in language that they can understand. Again, it's not up to us to convince them, but we can be open to having conversations if they want to. If those conversations are combative and demeaning and condescending, we don't have to have those conversations. We can walk away a boundary, right? I love that you're not telling them what you're talking about in therapy. I would not, it's not none of their business anyway. I think that at that point, so we could say, let's say it becomes the conversation devolves and they're like, you're so weak and blah, blah, blah. We can say, I'm sorry that you don't agree with me and understand how important therapy is. I'm, I'm going to go up to my room now or, you know, this conversation is, is hurtful. Therapy is really helpful for me. And I was hoping you could understand. I'm going to walk away now. Okay. I love you, but I'm going to walk away can do things like that, right? We kind of just try to diffuse it, but we can also just leave the conversation. Okay. There's no one that says we have to stay there and be abused. So that's, I just hate that this is so common. The, the real goal then, okay. So those are kind of some options of things that we can do, but the real goal is just to continue going and to notice your, like bring it up in therapy, talk about it. And we're going to have to come up with some phrases to argue back to, cause you said it's making you doubt going. Parents can be very manipulative without realizing you guys, because they have a lot of ammunition and a lot of understanding about who we are and the right language to use to make us doubt ourselves. They know us too well. Sometimes that fucking sucks. Right now, it fucking sucks. So I would like you to write down the things that he has said that have made you doubt going. And I want you to argue back with some facts. Okay, because my guess is just throwing this out there because this is one of my favorite argue back. I even did this with my grandma and I'll explain that in a second. But it's like, when did your dad go and get his master's in clinical psychology or his doctorate? Does your dad have a degree in psychology at all? Hmm, I'm curious. If he doesn't, how does he know? Hmm, 
Has your dad ever been in therapy? I'm curious. How long did he, was he, if he wasn't therapy, how long was he in therapy? Hmm. Is his experience the same as yours? Probably not. And I'm guessing he has not been in therapy, by the way. So what the fuck does he know? He actually doesn't know anything. Ta-da. It's really messy because it's parents. And as children, we're kind of taught, and I don't know if it's even taught. It's just like innate. We assume that our parents know better and know all, because uh, they're the ones that kept us safe as kids, right? And they're the ones, if they were trying to do that, I know not all parents do that, but if they were doing their best to be a parent, they they taught us things, they they showed us things, they kept us safe, and they did what was best for us. And so we think that they know everything and that they're 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 a good resource. And in a lot of ways they can be, but when it comes to things they don't know anything about, I get really pissy when parents try to pretend that they know a lot about it because they don't know. And in this case, your dad probably doesn't know shit about shit. He doesn't know shit about fuck you guys. He doesn't know. And so it's not up to you to convince him. You can have conversations if they're civil and if you're okay with it, but I want you to write down those things that he said that has made you doubt going. And I want you to argue back with facts. And I want you to bring this up in therapy because that conversation is going to be really, really important and it'll help you be validated in a way you probably never have. Because parents who don't support their children getting help and feeling better, it's always, I'm always very curious about that, right? Even my own father, who was not a huge fan of therapy because he did not like crying in front of strangers. It was a huge trigger and upsetting for him. He still supported me going forever. I, he used to say, I really like that you, you enjoy that, sis. And I wish I liked it. I just don't. A parent should support their child getting the help that they want. They should, you know, even if they don't understand it, they should be glad that it's helpful. I can't tell you how many parents I've had over the years on both sides. I've had parents who are shitty and are like, you shouldn't need this and you're not sick enough. And I don't know what the problem is because parents have a tough time sometimes admitting that they aren't perfect or that something could be wrong with their child. That's its own kind of, I don't know, mountain to climb over for parents. But I've also had parents come in and they're, they're just glad that their kid is feeling better. And they just want to do whatever they can to help their child feel better. And that's a way you could phrase it too. You could tell your dad, you don't have to understand it. You don't have to think that I need it, but I I would appreciate it if you could recognize how important this is to me and that it is helping me. You know, that could be another way. And the thing I was going to say about my grandma and the reason that I argue back with like, I wonder when they went to school and, and have they been to therapy and in psychology, my grandmother is very famous for not taking the doctor's advice. Like for instance, she has congestive heart failure and her feet were swelling up. And so she had to go to the hospital recently. And I was really scared because she's, she's older, right? And she's my grandma and I love her. And I don't know how I'll be able to get there to see her. And it was really distressing for a couple of weeks, but they have these exercises. So she's all better. She's out of the hospital. She's back home. She was in rehab for a while doing like little toe presses and she's supposed to do these little exercises. And I was talking to her and I was like, grandma, because she has people to come by her house twice a week to do the exercises with her. And I said, you know, grandma, are you doing the exercises for your homework? And she said, nah, you know, I don't even, they don't know what they're talking about or whatever. And I said, I'm curious, grandma, when did you become a physical therapist? And she's like, what do you mean, sis? My family calls me sis, by the way. What do you mean, sis? And I said, grandma, that's a physical therapist. That's their job. They actually go through a shit ton of school to know how to help you. And you're telling me that you know better. And she's like, you sound just like your grandfather. Cause my papa of all things, it's like role reversal. Normally my papa was all about doing what the doctor said and going to appointments. So anyway, I use that argument all the time. I'll say, maybe grandma, if it's possible, they know more than you. Yeah. Maybe that stuff will actually make you feel better. You've been complaining about your legs hurting. Maybe you should be doing that. And so 
I say that, that that's how I argue with her in a in the most loving way possible. But I think with your dad, that could be an argument in your own head. It's not something you have to say out loud. I don't want you to be combative or make things more difficult for yourself. But when he says things that make you doubt going, think to yourself, my dad doesn't know shit about fuck. Katie said, dad doesn't know shit about fuck. He doesn't understand. And if he wants to understand, we'll be there to talk him through and tell him why it's helping us and is, you know, as minimal of language as we feel comfortable, whatever is okay. But it's not up to us to convince him otherwise. He's an adult, he can educate himself. But making judgments about other people's things you know nothing about is just not going to be okay. And I'm never going to be okay with that. And so I know it's hard, and I'm sorry, but do not let him get in the way of you getting the help that you need. And the fact that you're like paying for it on your own. I know that you need them. You're living with them and you need the ride. But that's that isn't like such a small thing to ask. And they would they would do things for you. Like if you're going to the grocery store, they'd take you. Or if you were, you know, doing something else, they'd take you to be no big deal. And this should be no different. If you're going to a doctor's appointment because you, you know, had some kind of chronic illness, there would be no argument or no upset. And mental health is no different than physical health and should be treated with the same amount of, you know, uh, seriousness. So I'm sorry that you're going through that, but we got your back. Don't worry. And you're not alone because this happens. This is so common, unfortunately. That is all we've got for today, you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Um, and you know what could really, what would really help is if you shared this podcast. I'm trying to get this out to more people because, like, like I said, things aren't monetizable on YouTube. And another way to get things monetizable is to get brand, like ad reads and get brands that are interested. And I've been reaching out on my own, but it would really, really benefit uh, my channel and this podcast if you just shared each shared this with one friend. That would be really helpful and help us get our numbers up. And if you want to leave a review, that's helpful as well. Uh, And any feedback you have is always welcome and warranted. I love you all. Thank you so much for listening and watching. And I will see you next week. Bye. Self-esteem or why your feelings hurt. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.